starting a new series, and uh, without any apology, I just want to share with you the basis of it. It's purely my observation of people, of course, including myself, uh, over many, many decades. And what I find is that some of us have fallen into patterns of living that, that we're more like playing a board game than we are dealing with uh, eternal reality, the way that God meant us to live. And the important thing to get into our minds is that life is not a game. Uh, we're meant to live with eternal purpose. Every human being has been created with the capacity and the intention of God that we live with eternal purpose, not just living in the context of a game. I uh, came across a story about some kids in Minnesota, and uh, they planned a great heist. They were going to steal a cake out of a grocery store. And so you can almost imagine, you know, as they anticipated planning it and, you know, how they were going to carry it out and getting away and enjoying the cake. You know, you, you get excited. You've got a purpose and you've got energy and there's the risk element. And playing games are like that, too, because when you play a game, you know, that it's exciting. It's fun. You have a sense of purpose, you know, if you win the game, uh, achievement and that kind of thing. So they finally pulled off the heist, uh, grabbed the cake out of the grocery store, only to find that they had actually stolen a fake cake. <laughs> yeah, and of course the police had great fun with uh, presenting the story to the newspapers and things like that. And so here's the thing. If you and I end up living out a game in this life, whether we know it or not, we think we're going to get cake, but we end up with a fake. And the, and the problem is, is it can cost us our entire life. Again, when you play a game, you know, you're, you're, you're having fun, you're engaged, uh, you're enthusiastic, you have a sense of purpose, satisfaction, achievement, and all those things. So you're feeling really good while you are playing the game. But in actuality, you're not accomplishing anything unless you consider just enjoying yourself for the time, accomplishment enough. And some people do. Some people their entire life, that's accomplishment enough if I'm just enjoying the ride as I'm passing time. And that's ultimately what we do when we play a game. We're, we're passing time. Um, I remember when I was a kid, you know, we, we were kids that were outside all the time. We were never inside the house. But there would be those occasions, you know, when it would rain and you'd go to someone's house and you would then play board games so that you wouldn't be bored. But, you know, other than that, we wanted to be outside. But when all was said and done, as much fun as it was, as exciting as it was while you were playing it, all we were really doing was passing the time. It all goes back in the box when it's over. And nothing is really accomplished. Now, in this series, we're going to look at various games that I think that I've observed people falling into, traps we fall into. We don't even know it, playing games and passing an awful lot of time in our lives as opposed to living with an eternal purpose as we're created to. The first one I'm going to start with today is probably one of the most popular board games of all time. It's called The Game of Life. And this game has had an incredible history. I did not know this, but uh, the first version of it, it came out in 1798. Uh, this is what it was called, The New Game of Human Life, 1798. Life, and this is, this is what the premise of it was. This is the way they explained the game. Life is a voyage that begins at birth and ends at death. God is at the helm, fate is cruel, and your re reward lies where? Beyond the grave. What a different perspective. Can you imagine a game coming out with those words on it today? Wouldn't likely be that popular. Well, in 1860, a guy named Milton Bradley, we're all familiar with the name Milton Bradley, he came out with a, a version of it, and uh, he called it the checkered game of life, and that's, I think, the original cover to what it looked like. And uh, it was not the, the eternal perspective game that the first version was, but nevertheless, it was a game that rewarded virtues as you 
collected virtues along the, the board, and you avoided vices, you were rewarded, it urged you know, industry and hard work and honesty and those kinds of things, and so it was a, a pretty good game. Now the version that I became familiar with was the 1960 version. About 35 million of these were you know, uh, sold all at once, and once again the game had changed a little bit. Uh, now there was no word of virtues or vices, that was gone. And certainly nothing about God or re eternal rewards or anything. But, you know, you went from event to event in life. You know, you go to school, you, you get your education, you get your job training, you get your job, you get your car, you get your house, you get your spouse, you get a louse, and, you know, you just keep going on. And, you know, you move around the board until you come to the end. And the goal of the game was to end up in the millionaire retirement acres. That's the goal of the game, 1960. 1990's version came out, another uh, one, and now they tried, they tried to become a little more culturally sensitive. And so you were rewarded if you saved a species that was going to go extinct or if you did something to curtail pollution on the planet. But that quickly didn't motivate people too much. And so the latest version, the 2011 version, check this out. Here's what it says. A thousand ways to live your life. You choose. In other words, it just doesn't matter. This game, by the way, there's no starting in. You just kind of jump in wherever you want, in wherever you want. Do whatever it takes to retire in style with the most wealth at the end of the game. Now, I think the game of life is the most popular, pervasive game that regular, everyday people, just like you and I, fall into. I mean, you think about it. You know, we, we, we find ourselves human beings. We get up, we, we find, okay, got to make some friends, got to go to school, got to get through elementary school, got to go through middle school, try not to get beat up, got to go through high school, you know, try to be popular, not popular, try to get a date. Uh, then then you got to get your education or you got to learn a trade or something. You got to get a job. Then you got to maybe get a, get a wife, get a, get a spouse, get a, get a husband, get a car, career, and so forth. And you just keep the whole thing. Life is nothing more than short-term goals. You just stay fixated on achieving these short-term goals, and it's exciting. Uh, I, I mean, you know, you're, you're pursuing one goal, you're energized, you're motivated, you have a sense of purpose, you have a sense of mission and meaning, you achieve it, you have a great sense of achievement, and then you've got to add something to it. You can watch people go through these cycles all through their life until the game is over, your time is passed. <laughs> And then you go to retirement acres, whatever that may mean. It may mean for some that you learn to develop a taste for dog food, uh, you know, or it may mean millionaire acres. But that's pretty much it. It's all about fixation. Get this point. The game of life, because you might be playing this game without knowing it. It does not include God's eternal perspective in life at all. It's about short-term goals and accomplishing them and just moving along, hey, let's get some new furniture. Hey, hey, let's, let's take a new vacation. Let's go to a different vacation. Let's learn a new hobby. Let's do skiing. No, let's do scuba diving. And, and you just keep on adding new things, new things, until game over. And, and so in consideration of this, not only does it revolve around short-term goals, but it, it gives itself away because one of the chief symptoms that we're playing the game, whether we know it or not, is we tend to have a lot of worry and anxiety it, because we worry about are we going to get the goal? Are we going to have the kind of life that we wanted? Now, there's a verse of Scripture, a passage of Scripture, and we're going to turn to the rest of it a little bit later. But let me just share it with you from Matthew chapter 6, Jesus speaking. This is from his, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore I tell you, do not, what is the word? 
worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't, and this is one of the key phrases right here, isn't there more to life than food and more, uh, more to the body than clothing? Jesus is saying, come on. I, I created you in my image. You had the capacity to, to ask big questions in life. Who are you? Where did you come from? Why are you here? What's the purpose? Is there a creator? Has he revealed himself? What is his purpose? What is his will? He's saying, come on, there's more to life than just these short-term goals. Make sure you got enough money to get to this point and that point. He's saying, there, there's more. You know there's more. And then he says, look at the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Think about how the flowers of the field grow. They do not work or spin. Aren't you more valuable than they are? So I want to share a song with you that gives a contrast with someone that's been caught up in the game of life, pursuing short-term goals, full of anxiety. Let's contrast that with someone that lives with God's eternal perspective in life and how they feel about life and how they see the challenges and even the short-term goals in life. They don't reap and sow They don't 
when a person knows that life is not a game and they live with eternal purpose, there's a different kind of an approach. There's a different kind of peace. There's a different kind of calm. We know that we're here on a mission by our Father. He's going to provide what we need. And we know that we're not living here just to reach one more short-term goal and try to develop some excitement along the way. We know that there's more. There's meaning. There's purpose. That we were created and called for something far greater, for something that was meant to have eternal ripples in the universe, that your life, your life was meant to have eternal repercussions on the lives of others, that when you leave this world, you would not just leave a bunch of stuff behind, but your influence on other human souls, the only thing that can transfer over to the other side, that, that your mark will be there. And let me be very clear. I mean, there's going to be people. You are meant to have faces that will come up to you on the other side. I say, I want to tell you something, man. I was going through that thing. If it hadn't been for you, if you hadn't confronted me, if you hadn't told me I was doing something crazy, if you hadn't told me I was going to destroy myself and everybody that I loved, if you hadn't pleaded with me to trust Christ, my creator, I wouldn't be here now. I would have thrown my life away. You are meant to have those kind of experiences. You can. All of us can. We're meant to. Yes, we need housing and clothes and all these things, but, but God's going to supply that. And when we live life as the grand reality that it's meant to be, it's actually more exciting and more fulfilling. Now, I'm going to give you three reasons why this, this game of life is so prevalent today. I think there's multitudes caught up in living the game of life, just living from one short-term goal to another, staying excited, motivated, until the time passes by and the game is forever, forever over. One of the main reasons is something that we're all familiar with, and it's called peer pressure. A guy named Martin Lindstrom, uh, a former market research expert and author of a book called Brand Washed, argues that advertisers know something that human beings have in common with birds and termites. Without even thinking about it, we're often controlled by peer pressure. He goes on. Just like those birds and termites, we too are wired with a collective consciousness in that we size up what those around us are doing and modify our actions and behaviors accordingly. This implicit peer pressure is a far more insidious kind, and companies and marketeers are taking advantage of its persuasive powers in ways you can't even imagine. One of the reasons that the game of life lifestyle is so prevalent is that it's easy to find people all around us that they're living that way. Talk to somebody, talk to somebody at your work, talk to somebody in your neighborhood. You know, what are you doing? What are you excited about? What are you, well, you know, we're just trying to, we want to remodel the house or we, we're looking forward to that vacation. Short-term goals, anxiety mixed in along the way, no sense of who they are, no sense of why they're here, no sense of being people that have been placed here by their creator on a developmental journey, meant to develop character, to be Christ-like, meant to have eternally good impact on the lives. So none of that. It's just short-term goals, one after another after another. And it's pervasive. The best, the brightest, the friendliest, the nicest people are playing the game of life. And it's innocent. It's not harmful. It's not like it's uh, evil. It doesn't hurt anybody. And that makes it pretty persuasive. Now, we might think that, you know, we're mature adults and we're beyond uh, the ability to be affected by peer pressure. But uh, all you got to do is look at the way we're dressed today. Do you, do you dress the way uh, you did 10 or 15 years ago? Is, is that the way you're dressing right now? If you think about it, some of you are thinking, yeah, I probably am. But, but no, most of us are not. And just to show you that peer pressure really counts, uh, 
you know, I, I got thinking about this thing, man. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of stuck in a rut and everything, too, with the way I dress. And so discussed with my wife, and she has some new ideas about, you know, I ought to just be myself, not be afraid to dress the way I want to dress. And so I thought, well, but, you know, I got to consider the church because I don't want to be offensive or an embarrassment to you guys. So here's what her idea was for me. <laughs> the powdered wig, I, I, I could get with that. that. I like that. I like the triangle hat. I'm not sure about the buckled shoes. But uh, now, do you think that might uh, affect church attendance if your pastor was like that every week? Peer pressure matters, okay? <laughs> so number one reason the game of life is seductive and persuasive and prevalent is because we see so many people doing it. Smart people, bright people, likable people. Listen to Jesus' words in talking about the power of peer pressure in Matthew chapter 7. This is, again, part of the Sermon on the Mount where uh, we started reading a bit ago. Uh, he says, enter through the narrow gate because the gate is wide and the way is spacious that leads to what? To destruction. Isn't Jesus a pessimist? He's so negative, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he says, enter through, the, enter through the narrow gate because the gate is wide and the way is spacious that leads to destruction. And there are, what does it say? How? Many. What a pessimist. What a downer. That's not very affirming, is it? Many there are who enter through it, but the gate is narrow and the way is difficult. I don't like that word. That leads to what? And there are how many? Few who find it. Again, what a negative person. Or was he a realist? Listen, how many of you have lived long enough to know that anything that's worthwhile in life, anything that's good in life, it usually requires hard work and effort? How many know that? Yeah, that's all Jesus was saying. He's just telling the truth. Now, now what was important, though, is that he's saying that the, the path that is crowded, the path that the majority is on, and I usually and you usually feel the safest when we're just kind of blending in, following. We think, like, oh, everybody can't be wrong. There's some nice people there. They're very smart. They're very educated. If I just do what they're doing, how can it be so bad? This is just the way life is now. This is the way we reason. But the gate is narrow and the way is difficult. It leads life and few who find it. And then he throws this in in verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, well, well who will? Only, that's pretty exclusive, only, only the one who does, not just knows about, not just talks about, does the will of my Father in heaven. You say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute, Randy. What, what about the good news, the gospel, that you know, we put our faith in Christ and he forgives our sins and gives us the gift of everlasting life? What about that? That's right. Because when you really put your faith and trust in Christ, you now want to do the will of God. And you don't just want it, you do it. You put it into practice. Now, how many of you have ever read these little gospel tracts and booklets? Do you know what I'm talking about? You've been around church world enough to know. How many know what I'm talking about when I say little gospel tracts and booklets? It's these little pamphlets that people hand out on how to get saved. You will never read that verse that I just shared with you in one of those booklets where it says, only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. You'll never read that. But that's the truth. And it's not inconsistent at all with, like I say, putting trust in Christ and becoming his follower. So... We've got to be careful in just assessing people around us, and we have to be willing to resist that pull because that pull is not pulling in the right direction. Second reason the game of life is so powerful is that um, we are now living in an entertainment-saturated culture. Uh, Michael Crichton, former best-selling author, 
He says, today everybody expects to be entertained, and they expect to be entertained all the time. Everyone must be amused or they will switch, switch brands, switch channels, switch parties, switch loyalties. This is the intellectual reality of Western society today. In other centuries, human beings wanted to be saved or improved or freed or educated, but now they want to be entertained. The great fear is not of disease or death, but of what? Isn't that the most terrifying word for any parent in the summertime when your kids are home from school? I'm bored. I'm bored. What are you going to do today? I'm bored. <laughs> but the game of life is very seductive, very powerful, very, very pervasive because we're driven by peer pressure, and most people around us are living just short-term goals, you know, and secondly, we're living in an entertainment culture, and it's entertaining. You pursue these goals, and you reach them, and it feels good and exciting and, and meaningful, even though at the end of it, it all goes back in the box. And we go in a box, too. Let's, let's not miss that part. And we don't carry anything with us except those people who we have influenced for Christ in eternity on this side. So Solomon, an Old Testament character, he speaks about this propensity we have toward an entertainment orientation. Listen to his words when he was on a bit of a tirade of experimentation himself from the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, I did not restrain myself from getting whatever I wanted. You think that wouldn't fly today? There's a philosophy of life today that people would embrace. Just get whatever you want. Unlike Jesus who said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's the narrow way. He said, I did not deny myself anything that would bring me pleasure. So all my accomplishments gave me what? There is joy in, in reaching these short-term goals and, and the pleasure they may bring. This was my reward for all my effort. In other words, you get all the reward right now. You better enjoy it because this is all you get if you're caught in the game of life. So peer pressure is one reason. Entertainment culture is another reason. The third reason that it's a very powerful, seductive game today is that we are living at a time that's unlike any other time it's been on the planet in that, that we are bombarded by ideas and messages. We're, we're pulled at and we're prodded around the clock. We cannot escape it. There's no sense in trying to. Uh, and, and we're being given messages. We're being indoctrinated around the clock. Listen to these words. Todd Gitlin, one of the leading thinkers on media and our lives, recently said, the torrent of images, songs, and stories streaming has become our familiar world. This torrent determines what we see and what we don't, what we think about and what never enters our mind. We, we never have a lot of emphasis about thinking about God and eternal reality and so forth. The media we watch every day has been shaping us, has been shaping us for years, whether we know it or not. What the media does is normalize things. That's why Fred Fredler, author of one of the most widely used college textbooks on the mass media rights, the media may constitute the most powerful education system ever known to man. I'm going to use a different term I used a minute ago. It's an indoctrination system, and it's indoctrinating us with the ideas that eternity and God are not there, or if they are there, they don't really matter. And so the game of life, again, becomes very seductive. You just live to reach these short-term goals and have fun along the way, as much fun as you can. You know, life is kind of a game. There's no purpose. There's nothing to be too awfully concerned about. So this is what makes it so power, powerful and pervasive. It's a New Testament scholar that I really like a lot. He's an English guy named N.T. Wright. And uh, he tells an interesting story about a young teenager who uh, 
Wright was friends with, and through some sort of circumstances, this young teenager puts his trust in Christ and becomes a Christ follower. And so he goes home and he reports to his mom and his dad that he had become a Christian, a Christ follower. Now, maybe you don't know the, the climate, the spiritual climate in England, but it's pretty dark. And agnosticism and atheism is kind of pervasive right now. So this kid, imagine this. A kid goes home excited and tells his mom and dad that he's become a Christ follower, a Christian. And they are just shocked. They're disgusted. The first thing his mother says is, you've been brainwashed. You, you've been in some kind of a cult. You've been brainwashed. Uh, he tells N.T. Wright, this young man, he says, if only my mother knew what had filled my mind, she would have understood I needed a good washing in my brain. But then N.T. Wright, he comments on this conversion of this young man. And I think his words are kind of pertinent for our situation and topic today. He says, of course, he hadn't been brainwashed. In fact, again and again, and this was, the, and this was certainly the case with my friend, when people bring their lives, their outer lives and inner lives, into the light of Jesus the Messiah, things begin to come clear. If anything, it's our surrounding culture that brainwashes us, persuading us in a thousand subtle ways that the present world is the only one there is. This is seldom argued. Rather, a mood is created in which it seems so much easier to go with the flow. That's what happens in brainwashing. What the gospel does is to administer a sharp jolt to shine a bright light to kickstart the brain and moral sensibility into working properly for the first time. You ever notice how out of touch Jesus' comments are or seem to be sometime in the Gospels? I mean, he, he just says things that people, I mean, even the passage we're reading about where, where he says, oh, don't, don't worry about you know, what you're going to eat and about your clothing and your housing and all like that. Your Father knows what you need. Just, just trust him. Go and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Everything's going to be fine. We're like, are you kidding me? I, I don't have hardly enough to get by today. Why was he like this? Because he saw eternity all the time. He was aware of eternal realities. What N.T. Wright was saying is that the Christian is one that has been jolted by the revelation of the truth about God and the truth about the universe that goes past what our senses and sights can take in. And it becomes this awakening. It awakens us inwardly. It awakens us outwardly. And we can escape the game. The game no longer makes sense. And even the game of life is one that we can escape. And so let's, let's turn to that very prospect right now. The first thing that God really wants us to do, you might be caught in the game of life. You may have been sitting in churches like this all your life, but maybe for the first time ever, you realize that the thing that really motivates you, you're just like everybody else that's apart from Christ. You're just motivated by short-term goals. And you've got anxiety to prove it. And maybe for the first time, you're considering, wow, man, could I have been misinvesting my whole life and never really understanding it? So God wants us to, to reject this, just like this young man did that N.T. Wright talked about. In Romans chapter 12, it simply says this way. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Just say, I'm not going to blend in. I don't care if the best and the brightest and everybody in my family and everybody that's a friend, if they're all living this way, if they all have this set of values, if they all have these pursuits, if they think life is a game, I'm still going to live with eternity directing me. I'm just going to reject it. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We're transformed when we start viewing what God reveals about himself and about the universe. We live in light of eternal reality. We think about these things. We develop our value systems. We make decisions, not on the basis of short-term goals, 
but on eternal realities as they're revealed in God's word. I, I, I thought of an example, and, and I, I tried this the first service. I sure hope it'll be uh, helpful. It may or may not be, but, but it's my effort. Let's just suppose that you were one of the rare people, there are people in Scripture that were gained or granted this. Uh, there are some today that have these kind of uh, near-death experiences that maybe, you know, maybe. But let's just say that you were one of the chosen ones that God decided, like he did with the Apostle Paul, to take you for a short venture into heaven itself. He was going to take you there. He was going to show you around. He was then going to give you a mission and send you back. And so here you are. You know that it's reality. You, you are literally transported instantaneously, and you see heaven. You see that, first of all, it is real. It's more real than anything here. And you're knocked out. You're, you're, you're lacking in words. You can't even explain the beauty of everything you see. It, it makes the most beautiful natural settings on earth just look like trash heaps. It makes the greatest mansions and the most beautiful furniture just look ridiculously like garbage when you see heaven and what it's like. You, you hear sounds that make today's music just sound ridiculous to you. You're, you're just intoxicated with the beauty of the sound. You smell smells that you had no capacity to smell before. They're beautiful. And then you're, you're immersed by a culture of people that just overflow with love and kindness and grace. You're, you've never felt such safety. You've never felt such security. You've never felt such satisfaction. You are in a state of euphoria, but it's controlled euphoria. And you are so connected to everybody. And you are fearless. You know you're loved. You know you're respected. You know you're accepted. You know you are eternal. You are safe forever. And Jesus himself is present on top of it all. And so he pulls you aside after a short tour of this real realm called heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And he says, now look, I've shown you this because I want you to go back to earth. And I have a very special mission for you. I'm not going to tell you the amount of time that you're going to be there, but here's the thing. As long as you're there, I'm going to provide what you need. That's what Matthew 6 teaches. The Father knows our needs, and he'll provide. We don't have to worry. We don't have to pursue them like the unconverted with, you know, that desperation. He says, I'm going to provide. He says, and I'm going to tell you something. It's not all going to be easy. I'm going to put you in a lot of different circumstances. Some you're going to like. Some are going to be very painful and difficult. But the main thing you need to do is you need to develop character because you can see how much you're going to be entrusted with on this side. And so it's critical that your character becomes like unto mine because you know the heavenly world is immersed in my kind of unselfish, loving character. And so you've got to, in every situation, work on growing and developing. Second thing you've got to do, now you know the truth about God and the truth about life and the truth about eternity. You've got to tell people. You've got to let them know the truth. Most of them won't listen to you, but some will. You've got to do this. That's your mission. Go back. And when your mission is over, you know, whether it's by my return or your death, you know what's waiting. There's nothing at all to fear. Now, this is where you've got to really dig down into your imagination. Imagine. Imagine that that actually happened to you, and you now come back to this earth. How many of you know you would never, ever be the same person again, ever? Can I, can I just see your hands? I think you'll be different. You would approach everything in life differently. You, you would think differently about your, your relationships. You would think differently about your jobs. You would think differently about problems and tasks and everything. And here's what I believe. You would go through life asking two questions, and this is what I am pleading with you to do, because life is not a game. 
And we need to live with eternal purpose in mind. There's two questions that I must, you must always be asking ourselves every day, again and again and again, in order that we don't be caught up in a game and we live our lives with the eternal purpose God intended. And here's what these two questions are. Any situation, how might I grow to become like Christ in this situation? It's very simple. Any situation, good, mediocre, any situation, I ought to be asking myself, how might I grow in this situation to become more like Christ? That's my real goal. That's my real eternal purpose. Second question, how might I make Christ known in this situation? That's my real purpose. That's my real goal in this life. That's what's going to have carryover influence into eternity. If you go through life, I promise you this, Hold me to account on this. You go through life asking these two questions every day of your life and every situation in your life. You will live a transformed life and you will be grateful. You will be eternally grateful that you pulled back from playing life as a game and you started living with eternal purpose every day, every situation, because it all counts ultimately. Listen to Paul's uh, way of emphasizing it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. He says, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, that's all the stuff around us, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is what? Temporary. It all goes back in the box at the end. But what is unseen is what? Now, we either believe that or we don't. If we believe it, we need to focus on it and live for it. Listen to another passage that talks about individuals that are models, meant to be models for us, to encourage us to live with eternal purpose in mind. It says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. In other words, they were trusting in God. They were trusting in His promises. They didn't see the kingdom come in their lifetime. They didn't see heaven and earth combine as it will someday. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were... What does it say? Foreigners and what? Strangers on earth. Remember Jesus said to his disciples, he said, this world is not your home. You're not of this world. We're in the world, but we're not meant to be of the world. We're strangers. We're foreigners. We're called citizens of heaven in the scripture. We're, we're called lights to the world. We're called ambassadors for God. Uh, lots of things that indicate, if I could get that passage back, what, what our identity is supposed to be. He says, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. They were longing for a better country. What kind? A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. We're not to feel at home here. We're not to be content with this world full of all of its hate and prejudice and crime and disease and and death and accidents and so forth. We're, we're to be looking for something better. It's, it's in you. You want something better. But we're to live in light of that. Life is not a game. We're meant to live with eternal purpose. Let me close with a story that I, that I hope will help to uh, kind of compact this all together. Uh, Philip Yancey tells a story in one of his books, and uh, Philip Yancey, a great Christian writer, but in 2004, uh, there was an election in the Ukraine. Now, the, the corrupt established government had held power for a long time, but the hope was there'd finally be an honest election. And uh, Viktor Yuchenko, a reformer, was running, and he was the popular hero and hope of the people to throw off the corrupt reins of the communist regime and so forth. And so um, he was looking good in all the polling. He was way ahead. So when it came election day, the powers that be, because they controlled the state-owned media, they controlled the messaging, 
And so they just completely ignored the actual number count because they could uh, on the voting, and they just reported that Viktor Yuchenko had lost. Now, here's what was the fascinating part of this story. So the, the, the state-owned media was reporting this universally. But one of the things that the Ukrainian media did was they had translators on their screens on all their stations for the hearing impaired. How many have ever seen the, the, you know, the hearing impaired translators you know, on the little corner screen? Well, one courageous hearing impaired person said, everything you've been told is a lie, and I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed to be reporting these words. And then that person said, Viktor Yushchenko is the real winner of this election. This person sent this message in sign language. It got out to the hearing-impaired community from there. It spread all over the Ukraine. And then came the Great Orange Revolution. Some of you might even remember seeing it. Millions of people filled the streets dressed in orange. The reason they were in orange is because the government in power literally tried to assassinate Viktor Yuchenko by contaminating him with one of the chemicals that are involved in Agent Orange. The man's face became grotesquely distorted. He nearly died, but he lived. And the demonstration, the revolution was so big that it forced another uh, election process. And when this time they brought in monitors and so forth, and, and clearly Viktor Yuchenko won the election. Now, for any of you, God have mercy on you. If any of you are sitting here thinking that this this illustration has anything to do with our electoral process, please do not think that for one second. I don't mean that at all. I'm making a bigger point here. And that point is that someone had the courage to tell the truth and to say everything you're being told, it's all a big lie. It's not true at all. In fact, uh, Philip Yancey says it this way. Our society is hardly unique like the sign language translator in the lower right-hand corner of the screen, along comes a person named Jesus who says, in effect, don't believe the big screen. They are lying. Game of life feels really normal. It's, it's kind of Americana, but it's, it's a lie. You want to get a cake, and you're going to end up with a fake if you play it. You're going to misinvest all the wonderful capacities and opportunities that God's given you if you play the game of life and you won't know it until you've passed all your time. So, in closing, um, here's the hard part. You may have come in here and maybe you do consider yourself a Christ follower and maybe you are, but nevertheless you have drifted and you're caught up in the same, the same game that so many around you're just pursuing the next short-term goal, and you're worried and agitated about it, and you're not asking those two big questions that we ought to be asking every day. We ought to be asking in every situation, how can I become more like Christ? How can I make Christ known? That's what ought to be driving us, living with the eternal perspective. So if, if that describes you, you have the, the opportunity today to say, it ends today. It ends today. Life is not a game, and I'm going to start living today with eternal purpose. Some of us... Some of us, it could be that we need to be the little person in the box on the screen. We need to go into our world, into our cultures, into our social settings, and be willing to tactfully, gently, prayerfully, but wisely and boldly start sharing the truth about God and the truth about life, giving invitations to people to places like this. And then finally, there's probably some of us, truth be told, we're religious, but we're still lost. We haven't actually 
put our faith in Christ. We haven't actually become his follower. We really still trust our own will and our own ways more than his. We're hoping to work out some con deal with God where he allows us into heaven and we escape, you know, going down in the elevator. But truth be told, we really don't like God much. We don't like his will much. We're really not interested in him much. We're just trying to work a deal with him. And maybe today you could come under some serious thought to ask, who, who do you trust and who are you going to follow yourself for the rest of your life? Or are you willing this day to follow Christ, your creator, the one that loved you enough to die on the cross to prove the sacrificial depth of his love for you? So each of us have some things to think about with this message. The game of life is not a game fitting for those that are Christ followers. There's something higher and better. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll give us discerning eyes. It's so easy to be swept up in the flow of our culture. Help us to realize that life is not a game and to live every day of our lives with eternal purpose. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.